0: All right, so we continue uh, this morning in our study of God's big picture, tracing the storyline of the Bible, and, uh, you know, perhaps you're wondering how we are going to get through the rest of the Bible in the next ten lessons. We, we've gone through six lessons so far, and we're in Genesis 12, and we've got ten lessons to go. <laughs> um, As I mentioned last week, it was necessary to really spend a lot of time in those first 12 chapters of Genesis because they lay the framework for the rest of the the scripture. Um, So it's going to move pretty rapidly from this point point forward, but that was a necessary foundation. If you get the foundation incorrect, then the rest of the building, so to speak, is going to be faulty. Um, so we needed to make sure that we laid a really solid foundation. So as we build on that, as we go through the study of God's word, we'll have that, that firm foundation all pointing to the person and work of Christ. So as we begin this morning, uh, what we're going to focus on are two aspects of God's kingdom. We've talked about in weeks past, and we've tried to define, based off, off of Va- Vaughn Roberts' um, definition, of what God's kingdom is. And how we've tried to define that is... God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And this morning, we're going to look specifically at God's people and God's rule as it is seen in the partial kingdom. Uh, So that's what we're going to look at this morning is this aspect of the partial kingdom. We'll start that study this week and we'll conclude it uh, next week. And specifically, we're going to see how God's promise of the kingdom is partially fulfilled in the history of national Israel. Now, as we look at this first aspect, God's people uh, will work through Genesis 12, and we'll take that through the end of Exodus. And we're going to pick up here where we left off last week, and that was with God's promise to Abraham. If you remember, in, in Genesis 12, and this is on your note sheet there, In Genesis 12-2, God promised Abraham that he would make him into a great nation. And that nation consists mainly of the physical offspring of Abraham, though if you remember from our discussion last week, we said that there was spiritual offspring of Abraham included in that number as well, those who were trusting in the promises that were given to Abraham. And Paul elaborates on this quite a bit in the New Testament. Uh, as he mentioned, and actually in Romans 11, that under the Old Covenant, there was a remnant in national Israel who were chosen by grace to be the true people of God. Those who were believing the promises that were given to Abraham, and believing specifically in the true offspring of Abraham who would come. The Lord Jesus Christ. And so the physical offspring of Abraham is what is dealt with mainly in the Old Testament. So after God makes this promise to Abraham that from him would come a great nation, you see God reaffirming that several times uh, throughout the next uh, couple generations. God reaffirms this through, this promise through Moses to the people of Israel in Exodus 6-7 when he tells them that he will take them to be his people and he will be to them their God. So the focus that we see running from Genesis 12, just to kind of put a framework in your mind, from Genesis 12 to Exodus 18 is on how God begins to fulfill his promise to Abraham. But as you read through those chapters, you see that that is not a smooth process, so to speak. Last week, we looked at how there seemed to be an issue right away, because after God gave that promise to Abraham, 25 years had passed and he was still childless. You remember, Abraham was was thinking through how is this going to work out? Right now, Eliezer is the one who's going to be the heir of my household. And God says, You'll have an offspring. Uh, But 25 years have passed and still no offspring. So the gospel promises seemed to be in question right from the start. So what does Abraham end up doing? Well, we know from Romans 4 that he didn't waver in faith. That that is, he didn't distrust the promises of God. He believed that God would stay true to his promise, but he was trying to figure out, how's that going to happen? I still don't have any children. What's this going to look like? So he takes matters kind of into his own hands and He agrees with his wife, Sarah, to take Hagar, and he has relations with Hagar, and Hagar gives birth to a son. Who is that? Who's that son that Hagar gives birth to? Ishmael, okay? Ishmael is born, but God makes it clear that Ishmael would not be the one from whom the people of God would arise, through whom the promise would be fulfilled. And one of the most important lessons that Abraham is in need of learning is that if the gospel promise is going to be fulfilled, then God alone must bring that about, and Abraham must simply trust in God's promises. And again, that's a a great reminder for us as well. How does our salvation come about? Uh, Through us partnering with God? No, rather it's by grace that you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one may boast. Uh, So God, in his grace, and according to his unfailing promises, he does give Abraham and Sarah the promised son, Isaac. That's on your notes there as well. Okay, So he gives Abraham and Sarah the promised son, Isaac. But then the, the, the tension continues to build, doesn't it? Because what happens after Isaac shows up on the scene? God tells him, "Go sacrifice Isaac." <laughs> right? So there's this constant test of his faith. It really is an extraordinary command that God gives there, isn't it? Uh, you know, if if Isaac, this son of promise, if he dies, then the promise dies with him. But Abraham obeys. He trusts the God of promise. He trusted that God would keep his promise and that he knew what he was doing even if Abraham didn't understand completely what he was doing. And we get a glimpse of that in Hebrews 11. I love this, this commentary on what was going on in Abraham's mind when God told him to do this, right? Further revelation helps us to see, right, what prior revelation has stated. And so here's Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And then watch, what was, here, here's what was going on in Abraham's mind. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Right. So that's, that's a great just testimony. What was going on in Abraham's mind in Genesis 22? The writer of Hebrews says, here's what was going on. Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. Did you have something that you wanted to say? I so saw you said something. Yeah, when you first came in, you said something. That's okay. Yeah. That was the important question. Yeah. That's a, De- Deborah Baruth graciously covered us today, so we'll go with that. Okay. Um, so Abraham's faith is well placed, right? So you see God provides the ram, and he kills that instead of Isaac. So again, it's a good reminder for us to trust God's promises, even when we can't understand what God is doing In our lives. Um, Okay, so now we move from Abraham, and then we have the future of the promise now focusing on Isaac. Isaac marries Rebekah, and they have two sons, right? Jacob and Esau. Now, Esau is the oldest, and yet it's Jacob who receives his father's blessing, right? He's the one whose descendants will be in the line of promise and become the people of God. Now, what we want to ask here is, why does God choose Jacob? Normally, the older son, not the younger son, is the one who is the heir. Well, we know this. It's not because of anything that God sees in Jacob. In fact, the meaning of his name, which is deceiver, pretty much sums up his character. And if you remember in Genesis 27, it's through trickery that he is blessed by his father Isaac rather than that blessing going to Esau. So, once again, we learn the principle that operates throughout the Bible, and this is on your note sheet there. God does not choose people on merit. God does not choose people on merit. In fact... We see Paul's commentary on that in Romans chapter 9. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Romans 9. And we'll look at verses 6 through 13. Romans 9 verses 6 through 13. Can I have somebody read that for us? Or would be willing? Anthony, thank you. But it
1: not- The the younger, written,
0: of okay, now that, that is packed right there. That's a lot of what we talked about last week, mm-hmm. and it flows into uh, what we're looking at now. This aspect that it's according to the will of God. It's according to the purpose of election. It's, it's not based on anything done, though the, they were not yet born, they'd done, they've done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Okay, so you get that, that lesson right there, and that thread runs throughout the rest of the scriptures. In fact, is, as you look at yourself, as you think about your own salvation, You recognize that God didn't choose me on the basis of anything that is within me, right? It wasn't like, man, that's a stellar person right there. I need that person on my team, so to speak, right? As a matter of fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1 that God does it just the opposite. He he chooses the weak things, the things that the world despises, and he uses that to confound people, of which we are a testimony, and we should be glad of that, right? Right? We've done nothing in ourselves. So that that principle we're going to see running throughout the rest of the scripture, that God does not choose people on merit, just as he did here with Jacob. So Jacob has 12 sons. And at this point, they're far from being a great nation, but they're on their way. That promise is beginning to be fulfilled, that Abraham would become a great nation. And of those 12, Joseph is his father's favorite. And his brothers are jealous of him because of that. And so they sell him as a slave and they tell Jacob that he is dead. So Joseph ends up in Egypt and is soon sent to jail for something that he has not done. And I'm sure there were times where he wondered exactly what God was doing in, in his life. From his perspective, there didn't seem to be much outward evidence that God was in control. Uh, but we can rest in the fact that despite what may seem at times, God is always in control. Right? No matter what we see or what may be going on, God is totally sovereign over every single event that happens. And there's much assurance in that, uh, assurance for us in that. For example, as you read through the rest of the, the scripture, and especially that account there with Joseph, which really starts in Genesis 38 and runs through the rest of uh, Genesis, um, if Joseph had not been in jail unjustly, he would not have met Pharaoh's cupbearer, who, two years after his release, remembers... Joseph interpreting his dream, and he tells this to Pharaoh and Joseph's ability to interpret dreams. Joseph is then summoned to the royal court, and he correctly interprets Pharaoh's dreams, warning him of a coming famine. And so Joseph is released, and he's made prime minister, essentially, of Egypt, and he takes measures that protect the country from the effects of the famine. So it's, you know, it's easy for us to read the scripture and be like, oh, here's how it plays out, Joseph. Everything was, eh. but in the middle of that, while you're sitting in prison and, and you're, you're telling these guys that you've just, the, the baker and the cupbearer, hey, remember what I've just done. When you get to Pharaoh, tell him what I did, you know, get, get me out of this situation. And two years pass before that comes to fruition. So again, it's a good reminder for us of God's sovereign control over all things. Now, Canaan, where Jacob and his sons live, was greatly affected by the famine, and, and they hear uh, about what's going on in Egypt. So they go there, and they try to buy some food, and they come face to face with the brother that they've so mistreated. And not surprisingly, they're terrified when he reveals his true identity to them. And so how does Joseph respond? Right? Just kind of picture yourself in that position. It's like, ah, the tide has turned. And here we go, right? Well, that's not Joseph's position at all. This is a godly man who thinks according to the word of God. So here's how he responds to this in Genesis 50, verses 15 through 21. If I can have somebody read that for us.
1: That when Joseph's a- brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for I, or am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God made this for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he, com- he, com- he comforted them and spoke kindly to
0: them. Wow. What a response. Right? So here, here's Joseph's ability to look at this. He says, do not fear for am I in the place of God, right? Who, who am I to judge this situation? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, right? So Joseph was able in that moment to rest in the sovereignty of God at this point. God has seen to it that Joseph is in Egypt and has risen to this high office so that he can be in a position to help when his brothers come and as a result the people of God are preserved right so again a, a great lesson for us on your note sheet there god's sovereignty let me see if this is on your note sheet here I'll let him look at it okay yes point number 4 where it says in the case of joseph god's sovereignty ensures that his gospel promises are protected Gospel promises are protected. So we, we may not always understand why he does what he does in the way he does it, right? In our minds, we can think there, there had to be an easier way to bring this about, <laughs> right? We may feel that way at times, that, that God could have intervened and done something different to protect his people in Joseph's day, but even when we don't understand God's purposes, we can be sure that they are loving ones, and that they always guarantee that his will is done. And according to what is said in Romans 8, we know that they're for our good, even if in that moment we don't understand how God is working in the middle of that situation. So again, good reminders for us as we read through the scriptures and we see these things unfolding. Nothing, whether human evil, terrible famine, or anything else, can prevent God from fulfilling his gospel Promises. In fact, those are the things that are used to fulfill his promises and bring him the maximum amount of glory that he deserves. As we get into the New Testament, we see that unpacked as well in in the prayers of the people of God. They're looking at that situation and they're saying, this was a horrific thing that Jesus was delivered up by lawless men, yet you ordained it. You ordained that it would happen in this way so that you would be glorified in that. So we can trust God in all circumstances when we think we understand what God is doing and when we have no clue at all what God is doing. We trust that he is for us and not against us, and he has shown that clearly in the person and work of Christ on our behalf. So Jacob and his family all moved to Egypt to be with Joseph, and they settled there. And then at the beginning of the book of Exodus, the Egyptians have enslaved Jacob's family descendants, and they're cruelly treated, just as God had told Abraham back in Genesis 15, verses 13 and 14. This was something that God said, here's what's going to happen to the people. Genesis 15, somebody want to read that for us? I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. Okay, so there's, there's the, the prophecy, right? Here's what's going to happen uh, to this people. They will be <clears throat> enslaved in a land. And then we read in Exodus 2, it says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and notice this, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Now, when it says that God remembers, it's not as if he forgot, if he's asleep at the wheel, right? It's just a way for us to understand that God's knowing back to the covenant that he's made with Abraham, and he's about to bring that to So, God begins this rescue operation by appearing to Moses in a burning bush at Horeb, which is another name for Sinai, and he tells him to go to Pharaoh to demand the release of his people, and in that, he reveals a new name of his to Moses when he says, I am who I am. Now, admittedly, in the Hebrew, that's a tough name to translate because it doesn't have any vowels. Uh, Some of the older translations use the word Jehovah, some of the newer ones use the word Yahweh, and when we see this word in our English Bibles, it's usually designated by the word Lord in all capital letters. Now, through this revelation, God's describing himself to Moses as the self-existent one, this this covenant-keeping God who never changes. He's the supreme being, and think about why that would have been important as well. As you're sitting in Egypt, Pharaoh is esteemed as a god, and they have all these other other gods there, and God's saying, I'm the one true and living God who is supreme over all. That would have given confidence to both Moses and the message that he would go to communicate to the people of God. And again, another great reminder for us. As God reveals himself to us, he does so for the purpose to build up our faith and assure us of who he is, his character, and that he is not a God. Uh, He's not a God who can change, right? He always remains the same. So we should be comforted by that. And you see the Bible not just telling the story of God's work in redeeming man. It does that, but more than that, and this is on your notes as well, it reveals to us who this God is, that is, his character, okay, his character. God is the central focus of his word, and sometimes we can miss that. Sometimes when we're reading the scriptures, we can kind of jump in and, and begin to think, like, what, what is the Bible saying to me? It's not necessarily a wrong question, but I don't think it's the right first question. Right? A better question to ask first when we're reading the scriptures is, what is this telling me about God? Right? What is it telling me about his character, about who he is? Because in light of that, I can understand what it's saying to me and what God's communicating about himself to me and what he's seeking to do in me as he communicates himself to me. The Bible is, above all, a book about God. That's what we want to keep at the forefront of our thinking. So Moses appears to Pharaoh, and he delivers the command that his people should be set free. And we see in Exodus 5, 2, what Pharaoh's reply is to this. Somebody want to read that for us?
1: The Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go.
0: Okay, All right. Who is the Lord? Well, Pharaoh's about to find out who the Lord is as you continue to read through Exodus who this God is, right? So God sends ten terrible plagues against Egypt, and in each of them they demonstrate the mighty power of God. And each time, Pharaoh stubbornly refuses to let the Israelites go. But the tenth and final plague breaks his resistance. And on one dreadful night, we see here that God passes through the land in judgment and every Egyptian firstborn son is killed. Now, what we don't want to miss here is the point that is made regarding the Israelites. The Israelite firstborn deserve to die as well. They too are sinners, which is why God tells them to put the blood of the slain animal on the doorposts. So that's something that we don't want to get lost on. It's just like, don't worry about doing anything. I'm just going to go through and wipe out Egypt. It's like, there better be blood on that doorpost because you are sinful also. But I'm making provision for you. Each family is to kill a lamb and put its blood on the doorframe of their house to avoid the death of the firstborn, and we see this in Exodus 12, 23, which says, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over, so that's where you get Passover, the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. On your note sheet there, in the Passover, the Israelites are being taught another important principle that you see running throughout the rest of the scripture, and that is this. God saves by substitution. God saves by substitution. His people, along with the Egyptians, deserve to die for their sin. But God makes a provision for them, and another dies instead. And in that act, we're being prepared for a greater act of deliverance of which the Passover is only a shadow. Uh, just as the Passover lamb died for the sins of others, it was all pointing forward to Jesus and his death on behalf of his people. And you remember what John the Baptist said when he first saw Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin The world. Now we can read through that and maybe just kind of go over it and say, okay, that that sounds good, but I want you to think about what that would have sounded like to those Jews who heard that declaration. Here's the Lamb of God. They knew exactly what that would mean, right? This is the one who would come and die. And John looks at him and he says, that's the one, that's the Lamb of God, and he's coming. And this would have been shocking as well to take away the sin of the world, right? Because what was lost on the Jewish people by this time was the fact that the Messiah was not simply coming just to redeem Israel, right? He's coming to die and make a substitution for both Jews and Gentiles, those who before the foundation of the world had been elected by God. So here he comes and he completes that which all of the Old Testament sacrifices had pointed to. And it's no coincidence that Jesus died at Passover time, right? On your note sheet there, the the deliverance of the Israelites from Egypt points forward to the greater deliverance Jesus achieved on the cross. And listen to how Paul describes Jesus in 1 Corinthians 5-7. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. That's the confidence that we have, right? His blood is shed, I'm covered by that, therefore death passes over me because one has died in my place. Therein I live because one has died. And I'm in him, and therefore I died with him, and then when he was raised, I was raised with him. So that's the, that's the confidence that we have as the people of God. That is why Paul can say in Philippians 1, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then he later goes on and he talks about why that death is gain because he says, man, I, I'm, I'm caught here. Do I stay and, and be productive and be fruitful for your sake or do I depart and be with Christ because that's far better? Right? Only a Christian can look at death and see within it gain. Right? And the only reason that we can do that is because the Passover lamb has died in our place. And that death that we deserved was taken by him. So, Pharaoh then releases the Israelites out of the land of Egypt. And the Israelites also take many of the possessions of the Egyptians, which was a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. Remember, he said, your sojourners are going to come out of that land. They're going to take great many possessions with them. But God desired to make it even more clear to the Egyptians who he was and also to his people who he was. And so look at what we read in Exodus 14, which is really interesting. Before Exodus 14, when you go back into Exodus 13, God says that he's going to take the people of Israel and in a different route, not just kind of a straight route to get them out of Egypt. And he says that he's going to do this because of the Philistines and maybe the people of Israel will get afraid when they see them and want to go back to Egypt. So you have that one thought there as to why God leads them this way. But then in Exodus 14, we see another aspect of why God leads them this way. And he says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of, I don't know how to exactly pronounce this name. I was going to have somebody else read it. The Pihahiroth, between Migdal and the sea, in front of Baal Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. Now watch this. Here's another reason for this. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, They're wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. And I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them. And I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. Now, again, we can just read that and be like, oh man, this is, this is working its way. This is a great story here. Look at how God's power. But imagine yourself in that. Hey, there was a straight route that we could have gotten out of this land. And yet God says, I'm going to put my power on display. I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart so that he comes after you. And they look up and they see the Egyptians coming and they, they start freaking out. And Were there not enough graves in Egypt you know, that you've brought us out to this land? But God is interested in, again, bringing himself the maximum amount of glory. That's why he does what he does. So, again, a good lesson for us to learn. We may look at our lives and say, there's easier routes. I know there is, right? God is wise and he does all things according to the purpose of his will and for his glory and for our good, again, even when we don't understand that. So God purposely puts Israel in this position in order to demonstrate his power and his might to the Egyptians and to them and therefore to the whole known world. And the reason that I say to the whole known world is because of what we read in Joshua 2 about Rahab's testimony to the two spies that Joshua had sent in to spy out the land. Listen to what uh, this says here. It says, Before the men lay down, she, that is Rahab, came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. And now watch. Why? Why is there this fear in the land? For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you came out of Egypt, right? So here's this testimony that has gotten to these people. This, these people of Israel who are coming, listen to who their God is. And, and, there was, and there was fear there, not only because of what they did to the Egyptians, but the might and power of God and what he could do to them. So back, back in Exodus... Pharaoh has this change of heart that the Lord ordained and he goes after the Israelites. And the Israelites are fleeing and find themselves stuck between the mountains and the sea. And God once again puts his mighty power on display and he parts the sea for the Israelites to walk through. And then he causes it to collapse on the Egyptians who were pursuing and he drowns them all. Now, oh, that would have been an a awesome thing to see. Here's this, sea parts, and you walk right through the middle of it, right? And you got walls of water on your left and on your right, and you know this, this shouldn't be happening, <laughs> right? But God is putting his power and his glory on display. And so after this, the Israelites, they don't travel straight to the promised land. Instead, they go to meet with God at Mount Sinai where God had appeared to Moses in the bush. And I want you to look at what God says about this in Exodus 19.4. Somebody can read that for us.
1: You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how i bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Okay,
0: so this aspect of I've brought you to myself by, by this act of salvation he has set them free from the Egyptians. He's made them his own special people. And so now we see that Abrahamic promise being fulfilled, the, the people promise here of gathering together this great nation, and it's moving towards this land of promise. But there's more to come, right? So the exodus from Egypt is not the climax of the book that it's named after. It occupies only the first 18 chapters. The rest of the book, focuses on the giving of the law and the establishment of the tabernacle, right? God is not just a God who delivers. He's also a God who demands and a God who draws near, and his desire is to bless his people, and that's what we we turn to now. So you have God's people, and now we look at this aspect of God's rule and his blessing on his people. Back in Genesis 12, one of the promises that God made to Abraham was that he would bless him and his descendants. Now, God's blessing is experienced by us when we are under God's rule and obedient. On your notes there, for example, when Adam and Eve obeyed God's command not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they knew life at its best as they could in that environment. They enjoyed a relationship with their creator in his presence— In the Garden of Eden, and God's law to them was for their good. It was only once they disobeyed it that they faced God's curse and were banished from his presence. And so, what we're going to look at in this section is that the blessing promise is primarily fulfilled in this period of the history of Israel in two ways. First, by the giving of God's law, that's on your note sheet, on Mount Sinai and then by his presence with his people in the tabernacle. Now, I know there was a lot of fill-ins right there, so does anybody need any of that that I just said? Does everybody get what I said there? Okay. All right, so let's look first at, at God's law. The law is given by God on Mount Sinai. It's given to the physical offspring of Abraham for the accomplishment of the promises of the Abrahamic covenant. Okay? It was given to govern the people under God's rule as they made their way to the promised land, and it was, it was to govern their conduct once they entered into that land. But it was given also to reveal the reality that none, according to the flesh, could live up to its holy standard. Before the giving of the law on Mount Sinai there in Exodus 20, uh, that's, that's the God revealing it more clearly, but that law has always been there. Right? This is not something necessarily new. We know that from Romans 2, where it says that the law is written on the heart of every man. And you see that throughout Genesis and into Exodus, those type of uh, statements that God makes about killing, for example, and about the Sabbath and things of that nature, that's not revelatory in Exodus 20. It's, it's most clearly displayed by God there, but we see it all throughout leading up to that point. And it's given, like I said, to reveal that we can't live up to that holy standard. For example, in Romans 3.20, as Paul's indicting all of humanity, both Jew and Gentile, here's his concluding statement before he launches into the righteousness that is given by faith. He says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of God of sin, okay, so the law exposes our sinfulness, I want you to look with me also at at Galatians 3 as we think about the giving of the law and why it was given, because Paul really unpacks this beautifully here, Galatians chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 15 through 24, Galatians 3 verses 15 through 24, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Believe. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. So, Paul gives a great explanation there about the giving of the law. It was given to reveal our sin, to show us our captivity in it until the one would come who would free us from that, the one offspring of Abraham, the Lord Jesus Christ. So it reveals our sin to us and our need for a Savior, but it's also given to us to help us to see how God desires for us to live, right? That law is not done away with. We're freed from the condemnation of the law, but now we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to walk in accordance with the commands of God's law. The Sermon on the Mount is a great example of that. We're to live dependent upon God within this covenant to give us strength to walk in obedience to his commands and thus glorify him, something that we were unable to do in our natural state. Now the law, which was once burdensome to us and condemning to us, is now a delight to us. As the people of God, we desire nothing more than to walk in obedience to God's law. For in it we find freedom. That's the testimony of the psalmist in Psalm 119. It was a great psalm to just read and hear how he talks about the law of God and its function in the life of a true child of God. So, God's people are under his rule with the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, and the blessing that flows forth from that is that they're able to enjoy his presence. And on your note sheet there, don't miss the point that the Bible makes over and over again. The purpose of redemption is relationship. The purpose of redemption is relationship. Amongst all the blessings that we do receive from God, none are as great as this— that we are able to abide in his presence. That's the goal. That's the longing of the Christian heart, to be in communion with God, to be in unbroken fellowship with him. And so what we see as we continue on in the book of Exodus is God giving Moses the instructions for how to construct the tabernacle, the tent in which his presence is to be focused among them as they travel towards the promised land. Now, if you flip on to the back of your note sheet, and we'll come back to that other part. Um, It's not the best illustration, but out of the ESV study Bible, um, I have an illustration there for you of the tabernacle. Not going to go through necessarily all of that, just probably most of you are familiar with it and have seen it. Um, But you can see that that the tabernacle consists of a courtyard and a tent inside, separated into two sections. You had the holy place, And then you had the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And inside the holy place is a table that holds the bread of the presence. Twelve loaves of bread, one for each tribe of Israel. And it reminds them that God will provide for all their needs. It's a constant reminder there. And alongside it is a golden lampstand, which symbolizes God's constant watch over them. And then you have the altar of incense, which is intended to give a sense of the nearness of God. And then you have this curtain or veil that screens the entrance to the most holy place. Inside of that, you have just one piece of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant. And if the table speaks of the provision and the lampstand speaks of God's protection, then the Ark speaks of God's presence. Inside the ark are the stone tablets on which God has inscribed the Ten Commandments, and above it is a separate lid which has been called the mercy seat or the atonement cover, and that at either end are representations of a cherub, which was a heavenly creature. And the wings of the cherubim above the ark spread horizontally over the cover to form the throne of the invisible God. And God told Moses this in Exodus 25, 22. He says, there, above the cover between the two cherubim that are over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you. And so we see here God dwelling amongst his people once again. Now, God's presence with his people is wonderful, but it also creates a problem. If you flip back over on your note sheet there, the last point, how can the holy God live among a sinful people without destroying them. From the very start, the Israelites could not keep God's law. It's very vivid. As Moses is up on Mount Sinai getting that law, the people become impatient, and what do they start doing? They start worshiping, as all people do. But they start worshiping idols, as all people do, naturally. So how, how this holy God can live amongst this people is answered in the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system is designed to deal with this problem. It tells us how a holy God can dwell with a sinful people. So sacrifices are offered in the tabernacle every day for the sin of the people, And then there's also an annual day of atonement on which the high priest is to take two goats. And if you remember there, he's to take and kill the first goat as a sin offering for the people and then sprinkle its blood on the atonement cover in the most holy place, thus appeasing the wrath of God, at least temporarily. The Israelites deserve to die for their sin. There's a constant reminder of that. But God provides the goat as a substitute to die in their place. And the blood speaks of the life that has been laid down for sin. In other words, the people can live because the animal has died. And the results of the atonement are seen in what happens with that second goat. The sins of the people are confessed over it, and then it's driven far away, thus symbolizing the reality that God has dealt with their sin and thus can continue to dwell with the Israelites now God does live with his people in the tabernacle, but they dare not get too close there's barriers that are still set up within that, that system. Only one man once a year can enter the most holy priest, uh, the holy place, and that 's the high priest on the Day of Atonement. And so the sacrifices enable some measure of the relationship with God, but it's it's, it's not a really close relationship. They never fully deal with sin, as the writer of Hebrews says. They point beyond themselves to that once-for-all perfect sacrifice that Christ would offer through his death on the cross. So, The the death of the Lord Jesus Christ deals with sin once and for all. It never needs to be repeated. And that's the constant refrain that you see in the book of Hebrews. It opens up the way into God's presence to all who trust in him. That's the blessing of it as well. It's not just one man has access at one time of year into the presence of God. It's now all the people of God all the time. Can access present, the, the presence of God, and if you remember when Jesus died, what happened to the curtain in the temple? It was torn in two, right? Thus showing the way into the most holy place has been made available by the Lord Jesus Christ and what He would and what He accomplished. I just imagine walking into that the first time after that. I mean, that would have just been earth-shattering for that, for that priest who would have walked in there. So the symbolism is really powerful here, that the door to God's presence is now wide open for all the people of God uh, to enter. So hopefully, as you're reading through those sections in the Bible, you do so with your mind informed of what the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished under the New Covenant, because it helps you to look back and see how God was working to preserve that line, to preserve the line of Abraham leading to that true offspring of Abraham who would come, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in all these things, we see the types and shadows all leading forward to that future fulfillment in the person and work of Christ. Now, I want to close by reading Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 20, and then we'll pray. Hebrews 10, verses 11 through 20. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. And here's the admonition for us. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. I'm going to read down through verse 23. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near, with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time to again look at your word And in particular, what we saw in the middle of Genesis and up through the end of Exodus, Lord. We we pray that you would just continue to inform our minds, that we would grasp better the one story that is your word. And help us in all of our reading, Lord, to see how it's all pointing forward to the person and work of Christ and the full assurance that we should have because of him. So we thank you for that. What a blessing to have our eyes open to see and believe these truths. Bless us now as we go to continue our worship together. Let your name be honored amongst us. May our hearts be satisfied in you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys.